This podcast is brought to you by Workle, a platform helping people get happier at work. Find out more at workle.co. Work happier. So yeah, I left school quite angry uh, because I wasn't stupid, but I was kind of reasonably convinced that school, or the school tried to convince me that I was. It was the 60s and anything seemed possible. I was a successful ad man and I suddenly, my career zoomed. At 28, what's next? And the thing that I loved was cinema. You quite accept there's a lot of rejection. I mean, for every film I got made, I at least had three times that number rejected. Welcome to the Happy Work Life podcast, where people with inspiring careers reflect on how happy they have been in their working lives. On this podcast, we hear from a range of people working in business, startups, science, academia, media, healthcare, fashion, and much more, and find out which roles gave them the most satisfaction and importantly, what they have done to get happier at work. So sit down with me, Mark Price, founder of Workle, to help you get happier at work. Workle is the platform where you can find a job in the happiest companies, take our happiness test, network, and get career support from experts and much, much more. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Happy Work Life Podcast. Today, I will be talking to the legendary David Putnam, Lord David Putnam. David is currently chair of Atticus Education, an online education company which we founded in uh, 2012, and that delivers audiovisual seminars to students all over the world. In addition to that, he's a member of the House of Lords, but I suspect that you will all know him best for his time as a marvellous film producer. He's um, had so many award-winning films, uh, The Mission, The Killing Fields, Chariots of Fire, Midnight Express, Bugsy Malone, Local Hero. In fact, those films have won uh, 10 Oscars, 13 Golden Globes, 31 BAFTAs. I could go on. I could go on, as I could go on about all of the things that he's been involved in in Parliament, from climate change bills to digital and democracy and so much. He's done so much. It's my great pleasure to welcome David. David, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. If I may, I'd like to start with your early years, because I'm always keen to find out um, if people during their school years and early development actually thought they might go into the careers they went into. So tell us a little about your your schooling. Um. The, uh, the only success I had had in my early years at all was squeezing through the 11 plus mark. I, I did actually get the 11 plus. I went to a grammar school. I was a spectacularly poor student. I, I really was a very poor student. Uh, and the only prize, which was a 10 shilling um, voucher, what I ever won was for producing a poster for a thing called UNICEF, which is a very strange kind of thing that happened. But years later, I worked with them. Uh, and it was a, it was a globe that I, I got a penny, drew around the penny, and then drew a kind of figure, rather poorly, I think, actually, uh, underneath it. And it was, just a, it was a poster for UNICEF. And I've got a 10 shilling um, uh, a voucher. And that was the only prize, other than my 25-yard swimming stuff here, I ever took away from school. So, so what then in your school years did you think you'd go on to do? Was there any particular subject you thought, oh, I'm really good at that, I'd, I'd like to take that forward? No, I had one teacher. I mean, it's why I do believe it. I had one teacher, Miss Kirkpatrick, a history teacher who was fantastic and who gave me and left me with a, a, a love, a, a lifetime love of history. Other than that, you know, it was an unfortunate time. It was 1950s 
And a lot of the teachers, Mark, people don't, I think, realise this, that a lot of people came back from the war, men came back from the war, looking for jobs and drifted into teaching. They didn't want to be teachers. And I have to say, that was really evident. I mean, when I look back at the teachers that taught me at, at grammar school, they were people who were doing it because they were doing it. I mean, there was no real enthusiasm, with the, with the notable exception, I said, Miss Kirkpatrick, who made me realise that you could bring subjects to life. And that had a profound effect on me in terms of my attitude to education, what can be done and what frequently, all too frequently, isn't done. So yeah, I left school quite angry uh, because I wasn't stupid, but I was kind of reasonably convinced that school, or the school tried to convince me that I was. And what about hobbies, David? I wasn't bad at sport. I, uh, I, was look, I looked at one point as I was gonna be a promising batsman, but I smashed both thumbs in the same season and started playing tennis because it was the right, it was the right thumb that went first. And I became not a bad tennis player. I, I, I played for the county and I, yeah, I, that saw me through. When I look back, that and movies saw me through those very tricky teenage years. And I talk a lot when I'm teaching about the impact, for example, of James Dean on me and realizing that conflict and, you know, and uh, confusion, when I saw it on screen, I felt better about my own confusion about life. I had a wonderful, I had terrific parents. My dad particularly was a fantastic man. He was a photographer, a press photographer. And um, so I had a happy childhood, no complaints there at all, but I didn't ever engage with school or put another way, other than Miss Kirkpatrick, school never engaged with me. And, and tell us about the movie thing, because uh, I mean, to, I mean, what you've gone on to achieve in the world of film is incredible. So, I mean, did you used to like going to the movies? Did you go on a Saturday morning? Was there a particular genre you'd liked? Did that inspire you to think, oh, this is a world I'd like to be in? Yes, I started going on Saturday morning to the Saturday morning pictures. That was my grandmother, actually. My mum and dad were away. My grandmother actually let, allowed me to go to Saturday morning pictures. I loved it. But I was very lucky. I could walk to five different cinemas, literally five cinemas when I, in North London. And I'd see, I really would see in my teens, three movies a week. And the weird thing is, my preference was for anything in Technicolor, right? Uh, then the next seconds was, well, it'd be good if it's a Western. And if there was nothing else on, I'd go and see the black and white British movie. And I always thought you think it was a wonderful irony at one point in my life where people thought I was a kind of flag, major flag waver for British cinema. Whereas as a kid, I'd been, <laughs> I used to get dragged feet first into black and white British movies. <laughs> and, and when you watch them, do you think this is a world I'd like to be in? Did that ever cross your mind? Only... Once I cycled out to Elstree Studios from where I lived in, uh, in Southgate, and I remember standing outside there and watching cars going, and it was during the school holidays, watching cars going in and out. I thought, God, that's a, behind those gates, that's a really interesting world. Because we could also just about see a, a set that had been built for, uh, I think it was for Ivanhoe. And yeah, I think I did make that connection. But again, well, when I went to the cinema, you'd see these credits come up and you'd know, written by, directed by, produced by. And I remember David Selznick, I didn't have a middle initial. So therefore I figured I couldn't possibly be a film producer because you had to have a middle initial to be a film producer. So, so I mean, the idea actually from a kid in, 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 in North London that you could make it in Hollywood was not even, it was like saying, I'm also going to go to the moon the following week. Yeah. yeah. And so, so what happened then? So you did school, uh, you didn't particularly enjoy it. What happened? I hated it. I left school, became a messenger, initially in, in a publishing house and eventually in, in an ad agency. Uh, I realised that I probably made a bit of a mistake getting out of school at 16, so I went to night school. And again, this was a, a 
big like life life class uh i did nine subjects in three years and what we today would call or should be calling micro micro credits micro credentials so i did a business administration course for a year i did a psychology in relation to advertising course i did a copyright course which is probably most the best thing i ever did really uh so i had i took these nine subjects a design course a um rather like steve jobs i did a typography course and collectively that gave you a kind of um uh, uh, not a far from being a degree but you know you, you were i can't remember what it was even called at the time this was at um uh goldsmiths and also at uh, goldsmiths had a place on regent street polytechnic that's where i went frequently and, and not having enjoyed school what was it that made you want to do that ah well i think this is the most important thing i can say to you i discovered to my absolute stunned amazement that i like learning but i like learning things that i wanted to learn and what I realized is I put learning for me at school had been stuff that's been jammed down my throat in a very unattractive way. And then this other ridiculous thing about you know, taking exams, which I wasn't very, clearly wasn't very good at. I, I proved that to myself and the world quite quickly. When I left school, Mark, this is maybe a good story for you. Um, I went to see the careers master because that was mandatory. Uh, and the careers master, who normally was a man called Dr. Packer, who normally wore, wore a gown, uh, used to do the careers advice in Mufti. It was quite weird. And he said to me, well, uh, partner, you know, you've managed to convince the, uh, the school and, the, uh, and the, the, the exam board that you're pretty useless. Uh, what do you plan for a, for a, for a job? Well, I said, oh, I don't really know, sir. He said, so I've got an idea for you. I think you should be a rep. I said, pardon? He said, I think you should be a rep. I said, sorry, so what's a rep? He said, well, you drive around the country taking orders and fulfilling orders for large organisations. And uh, uh, I said, well, that's not really what I had in mind. So, you know, I said, it sounds like a sort of van driver. He said, no, no, no. He said, you were in grammar school, didn't have to be a van driver. I, I said, well, that's not really for me, sir. He said, listen, son, this was the line, listen, sonny, it's the only way you'll ever have a car. 1957. And did yeah. that inspire you? I was, I, I just thought it was ridiculous. I mean, I, it, it, all it did actually was just you know, put a double tick about uh, against the fact that school, the school was useless and the people that taught they were useless in that they had no, uh, not a clue as to what, who I was, what I was, or what I might be good at. Not a clue. And, and I, I, I know that um, you involved um, uh, Chair of Atticus Education, um, which you're doing now. So let's very quickly skip all that middle bit. Let's skip the filling and go to, to the other end, to the other, to the other slice of bread of what you're doing now. How does that experience in your early years affect your thinking now about grammar schools? Do you think grammar schools are good or bad? What does it make you think about what you're taught at school, how you're taught at school? How, how have your views formed over the years? Um, well, for, you know, in a sense, I was probably on a bit of a, a revenge kick, but uh, I was very lucky. When I wanted to leave the film industry, and I did uh, when I was 55, 56, and I, I, I'd done 30 years and I was trying to move on. And um, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely time to move on. And I had a huge piece of luck. The Blair government had just come in and uh, they asked me if I'd like to go and work with David Blunkett in an advisory capacity. I don't know where that came from. It's a phone call, literally. And I thought, oh, this is a brilliant way of segueing out of the film. So I took, I took the gig. And I had six incredibly happy years working for the Department of Education. I really loved it. Uh, and that, and I, my job, Mark, was to go out to schools and find out what was happening in the staff rooms, you know, what was really happening on the ground, and then, as it were, come back and, and meet 
David and, and Estelle Morris and others and talk about it. And it was a it was like a total eye opener. First of all, I discovered to my horror that for the most part, teachers were utterly demoralized, that staff, staff rooms were like slums, um, that the, the level of self-esteem among teacher profession, bear in mind we're talking about 97, 98 now, was very, very low. And uh, I was able to prize some money out of the department and we put money into staff, into staff rooms, literally, uh, to try to turn them into something that was reasonably dignified. And, uh, and I created a really, really good relationship with the, with the profession. To the extent that two things, I started the National Teaching Awards and I also became the first chairman of the General Teaching Council. So I got very embedded very quickly comparative, or comparatively quickly into the education world. And that's been a, a continuum for me. Now today I've got, when I retired, uh, well, actually 12 years ago, I started teaching online. I created Atticus Education. Atticus Education is a, a not-for-profit organization where any money we do make goes back into bursaries for kids. Um, and we teach, on, I teach film, but I, I don't teach how to, I teach the why of them. Why cinema is important? Why communication is important? You know, truth and uh, you know, that, that trust report I did for the House of Lords, that's at the heart of it really. So I teach that, but then uh, the big, the job I have, which may, well, I think will interest you, is I chair the education advisory board of the world's largest private school network. And that is, a riveting uh, role because we have extremely wealthy kids from extremely wealthy families trying to teach them and turn them into really valuable human beings. So I read a thing the other day about Eaton and a, a, a teacher from Eaton talking about why he, he felt Eaton had failed and what Eaton needed to do. What we've already been doing all the time I've been at North Anglia is, is saying, look, these kids are privileged and therefore the responsibility that hangs over them is far greater than, than normal. They're going to run businesses. They may run countries even. So turn them into responsible, decent human beings becomes pretty important. And the, the experience I had there, Mark, was in the middle, which was uh, seven years as president of UNICEF. So traveling with UNICEF, working Department of Education, forming Atticus and becoming familiar with, with, with all this. During that time, I also became Chancellor of the University of Sunderland and Chancellor of the Open University. So I, it was... A, I feel as I'm kind of jamming all these things together, but in that kind of blancmange that I just described is a passion and a belief in a particular attitude to, um, to education. Uh, I became a very early disciple of a man called Ken Robinson, who ever met or dealt with Ken. And that was all about the whole child, seeing, seeing every child as different, every child as having enormous potential, and the, uh, the, the obligation on the educator to find out what that child might do. Who could that boy or girl be? How, how, do you, how do you find out what their dreams are and then try to help them put together these skills and the life and the life experiences to begin to fulfill those dreams? That's education. It's not, it's not jamming facts into people. We don't need facts anymore. We've got a combination of Google and chat GPT. It's what you do with your life and it's what you do with the information that you gather. It's, so the gathering bit, that's done, almost done for you. It's then what you do and make decisions based on the information that you gather. So would you then advocate a change in curriculum? I would advocate a revolution in, a, in, a, in education. I'm very involved with a man, a man called Steve Mumby in the whole issue of uh, pro professional development in education. And I think that what we need to be looking at is what will be the skills required and the interests in the type of teacher we want teaching in all of our schools in 2030, not 2010, 
2030. Who are, the, who are these people going to be? Will they realize how important they are? Will they actually realize that, that if they're really great, Britain could actually pull its act, get its act together and become an, in, an interesting and important country? Because if we fail in the development of the right teaching force, Britain particularly will fail as a nation. One of the things I like about Ireland is they take education far, far, far more seriously. And being a teacher here in Ireland is a really significant job. You're, you're an important member of the community if you're the, the teacher, let alone the principal. I don't think that's true in the UK anymore. And if you are advocating change from the government at the moment, or the next government, what, what would you tell them to focus on? Well, I thought Tony Blair got it exactly right in 1996. Uh, you know, ask me what my three priorities for government are, and I'll tell you, they're education, education, and education. I'm, I'd go straight back there, because if you don't build a, a really, really well-educated and ambitious workforce, all these conversations, Mark, you have to listen to them all the time about productivity, uh, it's, 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 it's rubbish. It's just rubbish. We are in, we, Britain is an unproductive nation. It's an unproductive nation because we're short of skills, and the reason we're short of skills is because the ambition to be skilled isn't there in our education system. And let's go back to um, uh, to you starting uh, in advertising uh, and fill in the um, the huge middle part of your story. Yep. So um, uh, started as a messenger, yep. went to night school, uh, yep. did a whole host of courses you were interested in, uh, and then your advertising journey. So so tell everybody about um, your advertising life. Well, what happened was um, so I. I because I didn't go to university and because I just missed the call up, you know, which, which anyone a year older than me was, I suddenly at 20, I uh, had four years under my belt in advertising and I, had a, I was an assistant account executive. I mean, fairly low level of human life really. But what also hadn't happened at the time was the Beatles. So suddenly the fact I had longish hair and that didn't necessarily dress in the way that my, my superiors would have wished me to, moved from being a deficit to an asset literally almost overnight. So uh, you'll remember there was this whole phenomenon of disposable youth, youth having disposable income. And people forget in the early 60s, it was only youth that had disposable income. Most families didn't. Uh, and so uh, I became an attractive property. Then I had happened to be in an agency by luck, really, where I had my colleagues were Ridley Scott, Alan Parker, Charles Saatchi. I mean, we're a very young group who was suddenly given extraordinary level of responsibility and uh, an access, as it were. And it was the 60s and anything seemed possible. And I suddenly, my career zoomed. I mean, it really did. I was pay getting paid extremely well at the time I was 24. I mean, you no. Know, uh, so yeah, I was, I was a successful ad man. Uh, and what, were you, what were you doing? I was a group head by, 20, by the time I was 24. So I had this amazing group, I'd say Parker, Scott, Saatchi, I mean, it was a phenomenon, really. If you go back, if you want to go back and look at the old DNAD annuals of the of 64, 65, 60, we cleaned up every award. Um, necessarily became quite arrogant, <laughs> probably insufferable. I was very lucky because I'd married to Patsy, I got married when I was 20. That's actually a very important component of this. So I whilst I, I rode the, the the ride of the 60s, I had a family, I had two kids and a, and a missus to look after. So in that, in a sense, I think helped me enormously to deal with what would have been a pretty difficult period of my life. Uh, and then at 28, I thought, well, I've done that. And now what's, what's next? 
Uh, and the thing that I loved was cinema. That's the one consistent. We've run through everything. Uh, and I tentatively put my toe in the water, knowing nothing, really knowing nothing. Um, and more by luck than by judgment, I think. I got Alan Parker, who was still in the agency, to write a script for me. I didn't know any writers. And uh, we got this film made about how I met Patsy at school and, in a sense, how we got together. And that was successful, or successful enough. I then made a terribly bad film called The Pied Piper of Hamlin. And then I had these big breakout rock and roll films. Uh, That'll Be The Day, Stardust, Bugsy Malone. I had a, then had a run of very successful movies. Uh, but when you, when you say that, what do you, so what do you mean I had a film? when I asked for a script. Just just walk people through okay. what, what you did. What does a producer do? I, a person I owe a debt to is Dick Lester. Do you remember Dick Lester, the director? Um, yes. I was working in some commercials, in advertising, and I said one day to a guy who's just recently died, Jim Garrett, um, but uh, I quite fancied the film industry. He said, well, why don't you go and talk to someone who knows about it? I said, well, who would that be? He said, well, why, go and see Dick Lester. Dick Lester works with us, does commercials for us. And I literally drove out to Twickenham Studios and had lunch with Dick Lester, who said, uh, look, there's no magic about the film industry. Frankly, it's run by a lot of very old people, but most of whom don't know what they're doing. And uh, give it a go, you know, give it a go. But as I said, I didn't know any writers, so I got Parker to write a script and I got Charles Saatchi to write a script. To this day, Charles Saatchi thinks I made a terrible mistake not thinking his script was very good. But, but Alan's was good enough. And as I say, but by, I could... I, I could take up the whole of the, honestly, the, the time together, telling you how lucky it was and how it came together. But we, we got this movie together. It was respectable. And uh, it was enough to, for me to claim to be a film producer. I mean, just a small illustration. I, having found someone who's going to finance the film, or most of it, uh, I went to New York and it was the, the boss, it was the chairman of Seagram's. You probably knew the Bromford family. And uh, sat in his huge office because he wanted to do the announcement to Variety about this film he was going to finance. So I, I sat there and he, he waxed lyrical about getting into the movie industry. And eventually we got down to what the film was going to be and he handed it over to me. He was now bored. And the guy from Variety named Hi Hollinger, I remember, uh, said to me, well, what's the film called from the name of the top film? We went through all the questions I was good answer. And he came to the question I was dreading. He said, well, who's going to produce it? I had a guy in UK who was a film producer who I'd talked to about it. But he wasn't looking at me when he asked the question. I said, uh, me. And he said, how do you spell your name? So I spelt my name. And the following day in Variety, it said that I was a film producer. <laughs> <laughs> it was and then, ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And then, you, and then you worked out what you had to do. Then I just stood around and watched and said to carry on to people and well done and, you know, made all, all the right noises and, Miraculously, a film emerged. And so, your role was: did you appoint people? Obviously, you, you agreed the script, and oh, yeah. you I then appointed the director. And did you get yeah. involved in appointing the the actor, or how, yes. how does, oh, no. how does it I, The way I put the package together was uh, again quite weird. weird. Remember the movie Oliver had come out, and the two stars of Oliver, Jack Wilde and Mark Lester, were big at the time. And I knew their agent, John Hemmings. And uh, I knew he was looking for a film for them and couldn't find anything. And I knew they could only work over the summer holidays. And I had this script that required two young men, two boys of their age. So I went to him and I said, look, if you haven't got anything else for them, would you like them? They could be in this film. He said, oh, so I said, uh, I can't pay you anything. 
But I'll tell you what, I'll give you 25% of the film if they're in it. Oh, he had nothing else going for them. So he said, all right, we'll do it. I then went and met another chap that I knew a little bit, Robert Stigwood. And I said, These, this group you've got, the Bee Gees, uh, would they like to do a score? He said, I don't think do a score, but he said, um, would you like to buy some of their songs? I said, yeah, well, I'd like that would be great, buy some of their songs. So I bought seven songs of the Bee Gees. I had these two boys, Mark Lester and, and, and Jack Wilde, a script by Alan Parker. And that's, it was that combination, that package that I put together and, and, and made a film called Melody. You can get it today on Amazon. <laughs> and then obviously you've made so many successful films, David. Um, just tell us a few of the ones that stand out for you. Well, but, uh, well, that would be the Starless were very, very helpful to me because they, they made a lot of money in the UK and they established me. By the time Stardust came out, I was an established film producer. That was enough to allow me to get Bugsy Malone off the ground, which when you look back was a big, was quite amazing, but, but and that was a big hit. Bugsy was good, was good enough to allow us, Alan Parker and I, to be invited to do Midnight Express. That was a big hit. Um, and then I was, I had this idea for this Olympics film. Enough, it was a weird combination of ideas, really. Uh, and I got Colin Welland to write what became Chariots of Fire. And that was a huge hit. So it was, I, I kind of fell upwards, really, Mark, to be honest. I mean, I think that's what it boils down to. Um, went from that, did The Killing Fields, did The Mission, a number of films in between that I'm very proud of, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a very, very happy, I, I produced 30, a total of 30 films for, for television and cinema. And a very happy time, but I knew it couldn't go, it couldn't last forever. It was very demanding. Uh, I was getting older. So at around about 52, 53, I decided to uh, call it a day. I'd had a very bad experience when I became chairman of Paramount, of uh, Columbia, Paramount, Columbia, which I'd hated. I, that, was a, that was a miserable 18 months. And why, why did you dislike that job? I wasn't cut out to be an executive of a company that, you know, when you open the door in the morning, you have 50,000 people working for you. I mean, it was their mistake, really. Uh, but that was awful. <laughs> I cannot tell you. Uh, it was it was it was awful. It was an awful, awful experience. It was owned by the Coca-Cola company. And um, I wasn't there. I, in hindsight, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake, a mistake on their part. But it made me ill. Actually. I got uh, I got M.E. as a result. And that's that was another reason why I thought, well, maybe this is not the business I should be in. And um, when you think about your time in film, you compare it to advertising, were they similar or did they yeah. feel like different industries? No, I think they were similar. I think in the end, one of the things I had going for me, and I, I, I suggest it was true of you as well, is I always was consumer focused. I, you know, I had no illusions at all about the fact that whatever it was in advertising we were doing or whatever it was in terms of the film I was making, in the end, I was making it for people. And it was it was a question of, of, of creatively trying to create, put something together that worked for the market I was going for. I mean, for you, one of the reasons I was love you, you know, you absolutely knew what the waitress client was. There were no question. You you were in a sense synonymous with them. I tried to be synonymous with the with the customers for my movies, to be the right age group, to to tell the same sort of stories that I thought were interesting tell them with an energy that I thought would, would sustain those movies. So I was never interested in doing art films or in holding a bridge on my nose or pretending that I was an intellectual. I really made films for people. And, and what would you say you most enjoyed about that world for people who are thinking, oh, is it, is it the world for me? 
two things. I love the collegiality of it. Uh, the truth is when you're making a movie, it is, it is you and the team against the world. You're, you're trying to, you know, you're pushing boulders uphill every day. Uh, and I think that the skills that I had that were valuable to me were kind of flexibility of mind. I've always been a, I've always been a plan B person. What if, you know? So with, with movies, it's what, what about tomorrow if it rains? What, about, what have we got up our sleeve? What about, what about someone turns up and falls over and breaks an ankle? So you're always in a, a, a what if uh, situation. And I think I was, I, was, I was good at the job, Mark, actually. I was very, very good at my job. I think there was a point around about the time of the Killing Fields, I was as good as any producer anywhere in the world. I, and I know that, it's not conceit. And, and what were the things that you sort of least enjoyed about that, that world and, and that role? Is there anything that people should look out for? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're constantly trying to sell other people your dreams and those other people are the people with the checkbooks. So you'll have to, you're having to adjust what you passionately believe can be done to someone else's ideas. I remember going into an office in, in, in Westwood, just outside of LA, um, once, and a rather spotty, unpleasant woman actually saying to me, uh, when I had a script I was talking to her about, what makes you, I want to know, she said, what makes you feel you understand the American sensibility? Now I'd done Chariots of Fire and I'd done The Killing Fields. I didn't actually think I needed to have that conversation. So you're always up against that, that person, that person who doesn't share your sensibility in truth. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a tough bit. Rejection, you, you can't accept there's a lot of rejection. I mean, for every film I got made, I at least had three times, three times that number rejected. No, were there any that were rejected that you think, oh, I really, really wish I'd made that looking back? Yes, uh, two or three. I always wanted to make a post Bugsy. I wanted to make a, a big musical and Bruce Robinson, who wrote The Killing Fields, actually, wrote a really smashing script for me about a, a boy who, in, during the war, a boy who was caught in a bombing raid and the cinema screen collapses on, onto him. And it's about his adventures trying to get back to his family. And because he's in the cinema, he does it through movies. So he, he finds himself in a pirate movie and the pirates help him. And he finds it, and it was a, it was, it was a really imaginative script. It would have made a lovely, lovely film. And it was pre-Pirates pre of the Caribbean, pre, pre all that stuff. I think it could have worked very well indeed. And, and thinking about your time then um, after uh, movies, um, as you said, you, you stepped away in your early 50s from movies um, and you stepped towards politics. So tell us a little about that. Well, I'd worked for the Labour Party for a number of years and um, I got a phone call. It sounds again, sounds kind of ridiculous. I got a phone call a week after the 97 election. I was here in Ireland from uh, Jonathan Powell saying, uh, David, I need to ask you a quick question. He said, if you were asked to go to the House of Lords, would you be up for that and would you be available? I said, well, I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, that's thank you very much. It's very interesting. He said, well, don't say anything to anybody. This was in May. Don't say anything to anybody, but I just wanted to ask. Fine, I put the phone down. A few minutes later, Blunkett called. And this is how the Blunkett thing happened. He said, look, I'm putting this group together. Would you like to come and join us at the Department of Education? I said, well, David, you, you're too late. I just said, I'm, I'm, I just told Jonathan Powell about the, oh, he said, don't worry, we can sort all that up. I think it was that way around. So um, I heard nothing. And I was in my local um, delicatessen in August, and I picked up a copy of the Daily Other Times, and I was a lord. It said so. It's the first I knew. 
literally nine of us. Uh, and I, no one had called me again. And I came back home. I got a call from a lovely man who was a, the chief whip at the time. And he said, David, I've got a question to ask you. I said, what's that? What, uh, Dennis? What's that, Dennis? He said, you are a member of the Labour Party, aren't you? And I said, yeah, yes, I am. I said, well, thank God for that. He said, not all of them, not all of them are. <laughs> <laughs> and but, so how did you find that world? I mean, because it, it's so different to very, being a, a producer or in advertising. I found it, I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I sort of was a good foot soldier for a number of years. And then I got this amazing uh, offer to chair the, um, uh, the, the pre-legislative scrutiny committee for the communications bill. And that was the most extraordinary, I did later on also for the climate change bill, but that was the most incredible challenging thing uh, that sort of in a way to an extent changed my life because I got involved in this really extraordinary battle which uh, with my own party, with, 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 with labourers, quite, quite uh, as to the rights of the citizen and the consumer. And this is something I'm, I'm still kind of fairly obsessed by. My argument was that in the provision of information, the rights of the citizen have to trump the rights of the consumer. So if there's conflict between what you, the information you're entitled to receive as a, as a citizen and the, and the information someone is wishing to manufacture for you as a consumer, the rights of citizen must take priority, and we won that. After, I mean, against as we were against the lot of odds, I got, I, I, I caused a backbench rebellion in my own party, and we got it through. And the really interesting thing, Mark, is that's never gone away because whilst we won it, it was never really implemented. I think in almost every situation I've been in where the citizen consumer debate has, has played out. One way or another, the regulator or somebody has managed to tilt the, 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 the ball in favour of the consumer. And for me, right now, in this whole issue about um, the digital world and chat GPT and all those conversations, I've had a very uneasy feeling it's going to happen again. That, that quite clearly these information systems have to operate on behalf of the citizen. They have to. And yet I've got a very uneasy feeling watching the lobbying that's going on, watching the positions that both parties are taking. Not, this is not a political point. Uh, but in the end, they're going to be guided by what, what will work for the consumer. And it's a terrible mistake, truly terrible mistake. And I think it's a kind of mistake that makes democracy, as you and I would grow, grow, grew up to understand it, a very endangered species. And, and David, you left the, the House of Lords um, just a few years ago now to move to Ireland. Um, Tell me, I know we talked about your your education work, and I I know you're chair and patron of Lord knows how many things, lots and lots and lots. But how are you feeling your days now? Well, the uh, the Lord Anglia jobs a big job because we have uh, eighty four schools now. It's the largest group of its type in the world, and it's complicated. And what we're trying to do with that, going looking forward, because it's well, it's well resourced, is uh, it turn it into a different type of education offering completely, actually. So that's a lot of work. And I've got an amazing team of people that managed to put together. What I've done, it's a bit like, uh, you know, your fantasy football team. All the people I've worked with in education over the years, I've really rated. I've actually managed to get into one group, which is very, very satisfying. I'm enjoying that a lot. Uh, I teach uh, in six different countries, so six different universities, plus other odds, odds and ends, which is very satisfying. I've got a nice team here. I've got a beautiful office that Patsy built for me here. Uh, we live a 
we live a really, really nice life, and I'm very embedded in the community. I've lived here for 32 years, so it's not I'm not I'm not a newie. And uh, we just last week opened the West Cork Film Studios just down the road. So oh, wonderful! Who knows? Oh, wonderful! And I have to say, I hugely miss seeing you. I miss seeing you in the house. Uh, we we had the great pleasure to spend um, a bit of time together on the Channel Four board, which was um, uh, which was fantastic, and also. I had the great pleasure to see you in Vietnam when I was the trade minister. And of course, you were the uh, the UK's trade representative envoy um, to not only Vietnam, but Laos and Cambodia, um, where you did an amazing job. So it's been my huge pleasure to um, to watch you at work. And uh, one of the things that's always um, impressed me about you, David, is your easy charm, your ability to communicate with um, with anybody um and um you're always such a gentleman so it's been a great pleasure a to have had some chance to work with you over the years but also i'm hugely grateful for you taking the time out today to talk to our listeners about your career um and the things that you've got from it and i know there's a lot they'll learn thank you it's a great great pleasure Mark. thanks for having me To listen to more episodes and find out how to get happy in your working life, head to workall.co. Work happier.